Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Ein Yaakov class at Chabad of Waterloo. We are beginning a new chapter today, chapter 6 of Maseches Sanhedrin. The chapter begins by describing the process of how somebody who was um, judged to be deserving of the capital punishment of stoning. Um, these days, stoning sounds like a reward, not a punishment, but actual stoning um, So describes how that would happen. And so we pick up that discussion with one of the first bits of Agada. The Talmud talks about a little bit the, uh, the moral ethical teachings, the non-legal teachings. So we learn as follows, when a convict is going out to be executed, they give him a drink of a cup of wine with a grain of frankincense, a certain spice mixed into the wine. What does that do? That dulls his senses, makes his head spin. And um, it's a little bit easier to be stoned to death when your head is spinning anyway. Um, and basically Rashi explains that by, by being a little bit drunk, a little bit buzzed, you, you, you don't exactly have that clarity of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm about to die, I'm about to die. Ah! And it's a little bit less agonizing. An act of kindness, in a way, to yeah, you have to die, but we're not gonna, you know, make it as torturous as possible. We're gonna, we're gonna give you a little drink, and you know, it'll be over before you know it, so to speak. The Tanya we learned in Abraisa was taught. Who would bring? Where did you get the frankincense and wine from? So the prominent women of Jerusalem used to donate these things, and they would bring it to the court to be used. Like high society of Jerusalem would, uh, you know, it was probably good wine, if that's who was giving it. But in, if there was ever a shortage and the prominent women of Jerusalem did not donate that. So Mishalmi, how did they provide that to the, to the convict? Um, so I guess the question is, was the convict expected to bring his own wine or did the court provide it? The Gemara says, It's very reasonable to say that this was from communal funds, in other words, the, the court. Since the Torah says that it, you, should be, it, you should give it to him, um, um, give intoxicating drink. So, that the implication is that we, the, the public, we are the ones who are giving it to him, not that he should, you know, if you say that we should give it to him, that means that it's ours, we're giving it to him. Not that he has to pay for it out of his own pocket, in which case he's giving it to himself, we're not the ones giving it to him. Okay. And we go ahead to the next bit. Now, at the, at the moment where, um, <coughs> the moment when he was about to be executed, um, they would encourage him to repent, to confess his sins. Um, we'll see more about that later. So, as we bring up the topic of confession and repentance, the Talmud speaks about the greatness, the virtues of confession and repentance. Amr Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, Whoever slaughters his evil inclination and confesses the sins that he committed on its account, Scripture considers it as if he has honored 
Hashem in both worlds, this world and the world to come. The Chsiv is written, He who slaughters the sacrifice of confession honors me. It's a verse in the book of Tehillim. And since it says with two nuns, there's an actual letter nun there, and that, that nun in Hebrew grammar is the, uh, I don't know the proper term for it, but it's the reference to Hashem, of, that you're honoring me, so you're honoring, honoring me. It's almost as if it says that. So here the Talmud infers that that's, a, that's a, an allusion to the idea that you're honoring God twice, once in this world, one in the world to come. How do you slaughter your evil inclination? So first of all, let's clarify that this is all a metaphor. So put the knife down. Um, simply put, the act of slaughtering means to end someone's life. More importantly, it's to um, transform. So we know that when the act of slaughtering is done on an animal, it says in the Talmud that Ein v'shachat elu mashach, that when you, when you slaughter an animal, you have to um, draw the knife across its, across its neck. In other words, you can't hack. If you were to hack an animal to death with a knife, that would be an unkosher form of slaughter. You wouldn't be able to eat that meat. So slaughtering in the kosher manner has to be that you pull the knife across its neck. So this implies, according to Hasidic teachings, that the act of slaughtering is actually pulling and, and drawing the animal to a higher level of existence. Why? Simply put, on a technical level, once you slaughter an animal, um, and now you're going to use it as food for human consumption, so the animal is now serving a higher form of existence. Whereas until now, it was self-serving. The cow was doing what cows do. And humans didn't have any benefit from it. It was just out grazing in the fields. Now that you've slaughtered it, and a human's going to eat it, the potential is there at least, that if the human eats it, and then with that energy that it derives from eating the, the meat of the animal, that human is going to do something good and productive and holy in this world. So now the animal has become part of that good and holy act that the human did. Right? The energy of the animal has powered this good and holy deed that the person did. So all of a sudden, the animal has been promoted, so to speak, been elevated to a higher level of existence by being consumed and absorbed in the human being and, and powering the human being's good and holy deeds. Right? So, so that's sort of the deeper meaning of, of slaughter. When we say slaughtering the, the evil inclination, first and foremost, it means take its life away. That means to dominate, to not allow the evil inclination to, to dominate over us, that we you know, assert our, our control over it. When you slaughter, you take away its life, you take away its energy. But ultimately, in the bigger picture, the ultimate goal is that we elevate and transform the animal soul, elevate and transform the evil inclination into a force for good. Redirect it, harness its, harness, harness its, its potential, harness all of its craziness, and if you can direct the wild bull to plow a field, you'll do a really good job of plowing a field. Right? So, when you slaughter your evil inclination, it's like you honor Hashem in both worlds. Another teaching, Rabbi Shua ben Levi, V'am Rabbi Shua ben Levi, Rabbi Shua ben Levi said, Bizman During the time when the temple stood in Jerusalem, Adam makriv eila, schar The person would bring the type of sacrifice of, of an offering known as an ola, 
So he would be credited, he would have the reward of bringing an ola. If he would bring a mincha offering, so then he would have schar mincha biyode, he would be credited with having brought a mincha. Aval, somebody who feels lowly. In other words, you have different postures you can adopt in this world. You can, you can have the posture of arrogance, you can have the posture of uh, pompousness and being all grandiose and nothing's wrong in your life and everything's great and everything you do touches, turns, everything you touch turns to gold. Um, you can also have an approach, a posture of being lowly, of, of knowing how much you still need to do, of uh, being humble, not getting carried away with your accomplishments, not getting carried away with who you are, and, and everything in between. Right? There's obviously a spectrum. So he says that one who feels lowly, why would you feel lowly? Because you're experiencing some remorse and regret for the sins that you've committed. Scripture considers it as if you brought all the different types of offerings, as opposed to someone in the times of the temple who would bring this offering, so you brought that offering, fine, it's good. Somebody walks around with a, low, a lowly spirit, not, we're not talking about low self-esteem, it's very important to clarify, Gemara is not advocating being a doormat. Everybody steps on you, and you just means that you're humble. There's a difference between, hum, between humility and being a pushover. It's not the same. Um, the most humble person can fight a good fight when it's, when, it's, when it's needed, when it's justified, when it's necessary. So it's not about being uh, a nobody, but um, you know, it's about not getting carried away with yourself, about not being self-absorbed, and remembering that you're far from perfect. And if you have that, you have a, you're, you're in a healthy state. You have that lowly feeling so it's as if you brought every type of offering. Shanamar, the verse says, Zivchei Elikim Ruach Nishbara, the sacrifices, plural, sacrifices of Hashem are a broken spirit. So by having a broken spirit, having a broken heart, the old Hasidic saying there's nothing more whole, nothing more complete than a broken heart. So if you have that, that's considered to be multiple sacrifices of Hashem, sacrifices to Hashem, and and that's the power and the value and the virtue of remorse, confession, repentance, teshuva, all these things. Not only that, but in addition to that, the prayer of such a person will never be rejected by Hashem. It will always be accepted. This is written, A broken and crushed heart will not be despised by Hashem. Okay, now the Mishnah begins the next Mishnah where it describes how the person about to be executed would be coached to repent and confess. Before you die, it's very important to meet your maker with a clear conscience. And while you're still alive, while you still have freedom of choice, you're still a human being living a human life, um, the acknowledgement, the regret, the confession that you, that you uh, experience carries a lot of weight. So here's the Mishnah. When the condemned person was standing approximately 10 amos, 10 amos is roughly 15 feet from the stoning grounds where he would be stoned, the court would tell him, confess your sins. The practice of all who are about to be executed is to confess. 
They would tell him, anyone who confesses his sins before dying is guaranteed to have a share in the world to come. It's a sign of integrity. It's a sign of honesty. You're not pretending. You don't go to your death saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. You've been convicted in court. It's, the evidence is beyond, beyond, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's time to acknowledge the truth and, and confess what you've done. We see the same idea regarding Achan. Achan was a well-known individual, Jewish person, who when the Jews crossed into Israel from the desert, after Moses passed away and Joshua took over. So they conquered the city of Yericho, the city of Jericho, the first, first city that they took. And Joshua said that no one should take any of the spoils of war. Don't take any of the property of the city of Jericho. And Achan was the person who violated this prohibition and took some things for himself. And he was sentenced to death for violating this rule. So before it was executed, Joshua told him, My son, please give honor to Hashem, the God of Israel, and give a confession to him. And Achan responded and told Yeshua, In truth, I have sinned against Hashem, God of Israel. And thus and thus I have done. So we see that he was encouraged to, to repent and confess, and he did. And that's the, the origin of this idea. that Before we execute someone, we encourage them to confess their sins. How do we know that this confession of Achan helped him achieve atonement in Hashem's eyes. Shenemar, the verse says, um, Yeshua then said to Achan, Why have you ruined us? Hashem shall ruin you on this day. Which means, On this day specifically, you are ruined. In other words, right now in this context, in this environment, here in the physical world, you're toast. It's all over. However, in the world to come, in the presence of Hashem, you will not be ruined. Now, back to, our, back to our rules of how to treat someone who's about to be executed. If he doesn't know how to confess, or he doesn't remember what he did, or he doesn't have clarity about all his sins, whatever the case is, he needs some, some coaching. They tell him, say as follows, let my death be an atonement, atonement for all my sins. You don't have to go through all the details if you can't remember, or if your head's not clear enough, for whatever reason you can't do it. Say this line, my death should be an atonement for all my sins. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda said, if he knows that he's really innocent, and that the witnesses have ganged up on him, plotted against him, conspired, to testify falsely and set him up for execution, and somehow they were successful. Usually the court will catch that. But we're all human, and somehow they fooled the court into executing an innocent man. Then he may say, let my death be an atonement for all my sins, except for this sin. And that way, he at least preserves the dignity of knowing that before he died, he, he made it clear that he was innocent. So that's, this is Rabbi Yehuda's idea, that if you, if you really know that you're innocent, 
you're being executed on false charges, you can say, my death should atone for all my sins, except for this sin that you're executing me for now, which I didn't do. Right? Amrullah, so the sage said to Rabbi Yehuda, there's a problem with what you're saying. Can you guess what the problem is? Im kain yehu kol adam Every convicted person would say this. In order to clear himself in the public eye. Everybody wants to die with, with the reputation of being executed falsely. And he didn't do anything wrong. And they got me on trumped up charges. So if you introduce this innovative type of confession with that you know, loophole at the end, you think only the, the really innocent people are going to say it? Everyone's going to say it. You're making a mockery out of the whole process. Never, never again will you have a person who's executed legitimately. They're all going to claim this. So it's not a good idea. That was the end of that. Okay. We will stop here. Join us again tomorrow for more of the same. Wait. What's the lesson? What's the takeaway from all this? We didn't do a takeaway in a few days. What's the moral of the story? Moral of the story. Sheesh. It's heavy stuff. <clears throat> well, I would say the moral of the story is that we have... Um, a small form of uh, of confession before uh, before death in a very very perhaps uh, microcosm of the whole experience before you go to sleep sleep the Talmud says is a sixtieth of death right you're sleeping you're you're one sixtieth of 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 being dead um, before you go to sleep we have the bedtime Shema which includes confession prayers. End of the day, you have to take stock of your day. The good that you did today, great. Pat yourself on the back, keep it up, do it again tomorrow, even more. The not so good that you did today needs to be acknowledged. Don't whitewash it, don't justify it, don't make excuses, don't uh, rationalize yourself and, and give yourself you know, all the excuses in the world why it was okay what you did. Fess up, face, face the music, and, and live honestly, and live with integrity, and in doing so, you have all the rewards that are promised here without going through the pain and drama of actually being executed. Have a good night.